My name's Brad, and uh, for those of you who are maybe newer visiting with us, I want to welcome you here to Jericho Ridge this morning. I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here. And some of you who are uh, friends on uh, Facebook may have heard the news this past week. Our seven-year-old daughter is gluten and dairy and soy free. So beginning this past Thursday, we're making substitutions to our pantry and grocery items in our house. And I'm learning as many of you have learned before me, that there are some things that do not make good substitutes. I mean, you can call something pasta all you want, but to me it doesn't taste quite like pasta. Or uh, I think the worst offender in this this category that I have discovered in the very, very, very short time uh, is um, cheese. I mean, with all the technology that's available to us, we can send a mission to Mars and send back high-definition pictures and soil samples and all of these things. We cannot make fake cheese taste like real cheese for whatever reason. Some things just don't make good substitutes. I mean, I thought I was taking a big step when our school transitioned to a nut-aware and nut-free zone, so we moved from real peanut butter to wow butter, uh, which... Can we be honest? It tastes okay, but it doesn't taste like the real thing. Texture were there, but taste were not. It's still a soy product. But most of these substitutions, and I think, again, cheese is the worst offender, is just a poor substitute when it comes to being compared to the real thing. Even if you're not thinking about food imitations, all of us know the difference between a substitute and the real thing. I mean, think about canned crab versus fresh, off-the-boat, on-the-dock, on-the-beach, Dungeness crab legs. An imitation diamond doesn't hold luster to, or the sparkle, or the quality, right, to it of the real thing. I mean, men, remember what you were educated about if you were getting engaged? What were the three C's? Okay, carrot, Yes. Cut and clarity, that's right. You guys all can remember some of the things that you were well-educated about by your fiancés. You know, like fake diamonds, they don't make a good substitute for the real thing. So last week we started our teaching series in Romans chapter 12 called Upside Down. And we're looking at the specific characteristics of a person and a community that is living a genuinely transformed life in 2013. So we talked last week about how around Jericho Ridge, we're not going to tolerate people who talk and talk and talk and talk about what it means to follow Jesus and make a difference in the world and never actually do anything about it. Because the proof is in the soy-based pudding, friends. And Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 21, is full of clear and very practical good eats when it comes to knowing whether or not your life is being transformed and turned upside down. So last week we looked at Romans chapter 12, verse 9, which says this, Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong and hold tightly to what is good. So we talked about how this is kind of like a heading to the whole section that follows. And it's as if the author, Paul, is saying to us, love that is sincere will be dot, 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 and then he fills in the blanks over and over and over again. So last week we said love that is sincere will focus not just on avoiding evil, 
but will also focus on embracing that which is good and wholesome and full of the real deal. So we talked about cheap knockoffs, that we don't want to have any cheap knockoffs. And so we're continuing this week in our verse-by-verse exploration in Romans chapter 12, and we're going to further develop this theme of being fully genuine and authentic people. So if you have your Bibles, uh, open them up to Romans chapter 12. We're going to look at verse 10. Or if you have your phone and you can resist the temptation to check on the game score and tell Caster Keith, because it would totally ruin his whole day. You know it. If you told him what the score was, good or bad, it, it would ruin his day. So resist that temptation, but open up uversion.com and look at uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 10, which says this. Very simple, actually. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring one another, honoring each other. So two little phrases, and we're going to look at each of them, and then later on we're going to participate in communion together. So the first phrase in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, that describes how we are to love each other, says we're to love each other or love others with genuine affection. Your translation might say a brotherly love or, or familial love as members of one family. And the metaphor of family or familial love is explored here and in other places in the New Testament. And I'm indebted to Dr. Douglas Moo in his excellent commentary on Romans, and he reminds us of the fact that as a spiritual family, the church is to exhibit the intimacy and tenderness toward one another that marks the best earthly families. Some of you have been a part of a family system or a faith community that has not demonstrated those types of characteristics, genuine anything, let alone genuine love and affection for each other. And for that, I'm truly sorry and hope that here at Jericho we can be a part of the healing process for you in some way. I hope here at Jericho that you'll find a family that loves and that cares for you in practical ways as we love and serve each other on mission together. We talked a little bit about last week how this idea of loving each other is a bit of a fuzzy concept. I mean, love can be interpreted in so many different ways. If you were to ask me, I would tell you that I loved my brother sincerely growing up. I also regularly pounded the snot out of him. So, you know, it can, you could say, well, that's a bit of a fuzzy definition of love one another deeply with brotherly love and affection. I think in the concept that the, that the Scripture lays out for us when it comes to loving each other, real familial love, in the biblical sense of the word, love has nothing to do with my emotions. Biblical love is not an emotion. It's, it's more of an attitude or a mindset. It's a choice, a decision of the will that I make. It's not an experience of the circumstances or even the experience of the other person's treatment of me, which we'll look at later in this series when we get to verse 16. On top of that, this text not just gently kind of invites us to love each other or suggests it, it actually commands. It's a very strong wording that's used here. Love each other 
with genuine affection. Doesn't kind of leave it open for some of the fuzziness. There's a command that is attached to that. Which makes a little bit more sense when you think about the world into which this uh, initial letter was written, the book of Romans. Because remember, in its original format, Romans wasn't bound together neatly with 65 other books and printed on thin paper with faux gold little edging around it so they can fit it all in and shiny little edging on the pages. Romans was just a letter written by Paul, one of the leaders in the early church movement, to a group of Christians who were meeting together in the city of Rome. And so Rome had its own unique experiences with the Christian movement that might be helpful for us to understand then some of the history and some of the context that this was written to. Because whatever Romans 12 is going to say to us, certainly it meant and said something to the first readers and the first hearers as they experienced it. So again, a quick history lesson. We don't know that much about the founding of the church in the city of Rome. Uh, We know a few things. Luke tells us in Acts chapter 2 verse 10 that people from the city of Rome, Jewish God-fearers, were among those who saw the Holy Spirit poured out at Pentecost and were among those, it's a strong possibility then, that they were among the 3,000 people who converted on that day. And maybe they brought back their newfound belief in Jesus as Messiah to the city of Rome. The early church fathers, Ambroaster and Irenaeus, claimed that the church in Rome had its origins in the Jewish synagogue. And historical records and archaeological excavation tell us that there were actually quite a large number of synagogues in Rome in the first century. In fact, there were so many Jewish people that had immigrated to Rome that it actually began to cause trouble. They made up a significant portion of the population of the city of Rome in the early part of the first century. But in AD 49, that all changed because the Emperor Claudius, out of sheer exasperation over a Jewish squabbles that had broke out, you can read it in the history books, and he, he's trying to figure out what in the heck they're fighting about. They're fighting about this thing called Christus, or Jesus claimed to be the Christ. And so he's sick and tired of how many Jews there are in his city, and how upset and argumentative they're becoming with each other. So he exercises his prerogative as emperor, and declares that all Jews must leave Rome immediately in AD 49, just kicks them all out. So they all leave Rome, and we read a little bit about this in Acts chapter 18, verse 2. Priscilla and Aquila mention this. There's some leaders in the early church movement, and they actually talk about their experience of having to be kicked out of Rome. So overnight, the church in Rome goes from being predominantly Jewish to being 100% Gentile instantaneously. Now, by the time Paul writes the book of Romans, Jews are now allowed back into Rome. They're back on the emperor's good side. But they come back to a church that is dominated now by Gentiles, non-Jews. And you can imagine the kind of social tension that this creates, because now the non-Jews 
are leading this movement that has its origin and connectivity with the Jewish people and their understanding of Jesus as Messiah and the tension that this creates. Jews say, well, I stand squarely in the historical heritage from which Christianity has sprung. I was a key leader here in this community. I've left for a couple of years. Now I'm back. I need my position of leadership back. How would you feel if you're a, a Gentile who's trying to get this all sorted out and figured out and then all of a sudden you're in a position of leadership and then it's kind of taken away from you again. So this kind of sociocultural tension and backdrop helps, I think, make sense of a lot of the content of the book of Romans. Because you read Romans and you think, why is he on and on about scolding the Gentiles for being so arrogant? Why does he talk about stronger and weaker brothers and sisters? How, why does he spend all of this time about how people should relate to each other? Well, this is the situation that he's writing to. And so he's saying to them, listen, you people need to get it together. You're a spiritual family now, and you need to act like one. And so you need to exhibit the same characteristics that you would exhibit to blood relatives, even though you have very different lineages as Jews and Gentiles. Love each other with genuine affection. If you're a spiritual family, start acting like one. And then he gives them a litmus test with the second phrase to help them know whether or not they're on the right track with it. People who love each other with genuine affection do not accept poor substitutions. They take delight in honoring one another. Honor one another above yourselves. Put the red carpet out for others, he tells them. People who genuinely love each other are willing to put the other person in a position their wants, their needs, their opinions, their timetable ahead of their own. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 says it this way. Don't be selfish. Do not try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Take delight in honoring one another. Now, don't hear what this text is not saying, because I can see the wheels kind of turning in some of your minds, and you're thinking, well, that isn't really realistic or possible to do that, is it, to always be considering other people better than myself? I mean, think about the circumstances of my life, Brad. You, you don't even know all of the details of the custody battle that I'm involved in right now. If, the, if I put the other person's needs ahead of my own, very, very bad things will happen. You might scratch your head and think, well, how does this, what are the ethical implications of this at a broader level? How would this apply to government or governmental or international relationships? Does honoring one another and thinking of others as better than ourselves mean, oh, sure, just take whatever you want or need at the expense of anything of our own people? We're just trying to put you first. You go, go first. Don't worry about us. Well, no. Remember, the command is predicated or rooted in the reality that there's a family system in place. Even if the family system is maybe dysfunctional, there's a system of relationships in place 
in this text. So it's not suggesting that you become a doormat for everyone and let people walk all over you. We're going to explore this a little bit further again in verse 16 when it says, as much as is possible with you, live at peace with others. What does that mean? We'll come to that in a few weeks. The command that is given here is literally to work at outdoing other people in showing love and deference and compassion toward those around you. And this also, this taking delight in honoring others is more than just an emotional response. It's the same as love. It's an attitude, a mindset, a choice of my will. It's a position that I take and maintain regardless of circumstantial evidence to the contrary. And this is a challenge for us partially because our culture is predicated on exactly the opposite set of assumptions. Our culture is predicated on the fact that there's a ladder. I must climb it. I must climb it quickly and easily. And I must have clear and clean ways of demonstrating to those around me where I'm at on the ladder so that they can understand where I am and where they are in relationship to me. There's tons of ways in which we can do this. You can do it by wearing a certain brand of clothing because clearly this communicates that I'm needing to or wanting to impress you or make a, a sort of a, a statement to you about where I fit in kind of the socioeconomic climate that we both exist in. You can make a statement and say, well, if you were as successful as me, you too would spend $85 on a t-shirt because I did and therefore you should too. You can drive a very new model of vehicle because this ensures social status, telling everyone around you that I'm not doing this for my ego, I'm doing this in the name of reliability. You can get caught in the trap of trying to impress others by relying on your education or your involvement in things and figuring out ways to drop into casual conversation these things so that people clearly understand and know all of the great things that you're doing and such a great person you must be and how you can display it online for everyone else to see in your social networks. You see, if I'm not careful, I know what goes on in my heart. I know when I walk into a room, immediately and almost subconsciously, I try to figure out where I measure up against other people. And then I begin a subtle or not-so-subtle campaign to try and maintain my place in the order wherever I've decided that I fit. Oh, they're talking about, if I'm with a group of other pastors, oh, they're talking about how fantastic their church is. Let me see if I can come up with a story from Jericho that could impress them and one-up that story, because that was a totally lame story. Our church is way cooler than that. (sighs) Oh, they haven't finished that part of their education yet. Let me figure out a way to subtly drop into the conversation that I finished that a long time ago. Impress and maintain, impress and maintain, impress and maintain. It's no wonder that Paul writes a few short verses earlier to this crew and says very pointedly in verse uh, 2 and verse 3 of chapter 12, because of the privilege and the authority that God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Don't think of yourselves as better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves. 
measuring yourselves not by other people, but by the faith that God has given to us. Just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. Remember the socio-economic and cultural dynamic that Paul's addressing this to? They have issues. People are running around trying to demonstrate the purity of their ethnic and religious lineage as a way of carving out space in the social order. But we would never do that today, would we? Oh, you mean you didn't grow up Mennonite? Oh, wow, your last name isn't Thiessen or Weeb or, well, dear, how long have you been a real Christian then? Ridiculous. People are running around in the church in Rome trying to actively discredit other people's cultural and theological convictions and make themselves feel superior. But that would never happen today, would it? Oh, you hold only to the penal substitutionary theory of the atonement? Hmm, well, poor you. Someday you'll see the truth and come to read the scriptures as enlightened as we are here. Until that day, I will tolerate you, but please grow up. (laughs) Would never happen today, would it? See, friends, as a spiritual family, spiritual families have all the same strengths and all the same weaknesses as family systems. The same glimmers of possibility for sacrificial love and the same possibilities for pride and for arrogance and for people to say stupid things to one another. There's examples when we can put aside all of the things, our hurts and our hang-ups and our pasts and histories, and then sometimes in the same breath, we can push others aside in our desire to get to the front of the line and demonstrate to everybody how good of a Christian that we are so that we can feel good about ourselves. The same shadowy desires can exist in our hearts to impress each other and carefully manage the opinions of others so that I can feel good about myself. But the antidote is right here in front of us in this verse. Take delight in honoring each other. Love each other with genuine affection. Try to outdo each other, not in image management, but in sacrifice and in patience and in love and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness. Cycling back to that first part of our conversation about food, I can choose to think about the experience, experiencing part of our meals in our home as gluten, dairy, and soy-free in terms of how inconvenient it is for me, how much I like my regular pancake mix over this new one. How much cheaper it is to buy my old stuff. And I can allow resentment to grow in my heart, or I can choose to put the needs and the health of another family member over my own personal preferences. I can seek her well being. And if that results in me making some personal adjustments as to how much flavor or enjoyment I get out of some food, so be it. That's just what you do when you're part of a healthy family. And the same thing is true for us here in the life of Jericho Ridge. 
this morning, Kevin and the team may not have sung all of your favorite songs. I may not be your favorite member of the teaching team. We may do communion or prayer in ways that you don't think are great ways. You may come to different conclusions theologically about a whole bunch of stuff than the people sitting next to you on the issues of women in ministry leadership or whether or not Jericho Ridge should have ever its own building or how we do community connections around here. You can choose to hold a grudge about the time that you were in hospital and the pastors didn't call you. Or how Ruth Ellen always asks you to serve at times that are inconvenient for your schedule. You can get upset about Pastor Mike's lack of administration. Or why we don't use your favorite translation on Sunday mornings. And the list goes on and on and on. Because there are thousands of things that you could think of. And there are thousands of ways that we could think of ourselves as individuals as better or more sophisticated or all kinds of other things. It could cause us to get our backs up. But friends, the call of this text and the challenge in front of us as a community is that there simply is no substitute for genuine affection and love. There simply is no way around life in a community of faith except sometimes giving up your preferences for the greater good. There simply is no substitute. And if we let personal preferences stand in the way of what God wants to do in and through his church family, how he wants to use us to see lives and hearts transformed here in Willoughby and Clayton and beyond, that's completely unacceptable. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight even when it's not convenient, even when it pushes your buttons in recognizing and honoring one another. Anything else is a very, very, very poor substitute. Let's pray together as the communion serving teams and the band comes to lead us in response. God, I'm grateful that you have given us your spirit to empower and strengthen us for this work that you've called us to because I know myself, I know my own heart, I know a lot of other people here in the life of Jericho and I know we can't get there on our own. There's no way, God, we could work up enough goodwill and kindness toward each other to get over some of the hurts and hang-ups that we create in the life of this family. And so I'm profoundly grateful for the work of your Spirit in our hearts to instill and to protect and to nurture a unity of spirit and a bond of peace and genuine love and affection for each other. I pray you'd stir that up in our hearts and our lives in this year, in this season, God. I pray you'd stir it up in my heart, in my life, in this season. Stir it up for people that are very different than me. Stir it up for people who are far from you. Stir it up for people who I disagree with or we, for whatever reason, don't see eye to eye on different things. God, would you just knit us together into a community of faith that looks past all of those things and grows and grows and grows in our desire and our capacity to love each other with genuine affection. 
we acknowledge and confess our need for your Spirit's work in our lives to do that. We acknowledge and confess to you and to our brothers and sisters that we have not always got there. And so we confess that and we ask that you would hear us and forgive us. So we move into a time of response and communion. The scripture is clear that if you have anything against a brother or a sister, that this is the time to go and make it right. You may just go for a walk around the track. You may need to just excuse yourself, make a phone call to somebody that God brings to your mind. You, they may be here and you may need to just go up to them and have a conversation with them. But don't go to the communion table if you're in a place where you feel like that you haven't been able to make it right with them as much as it's possible with you. We celebrate communion today because communion really is one of the best expressions of unity that we have in the life of the church. Metaphorically, we all drink from the same cup, even though for hygiene reasons we don't. Metaphorically, we all eat the same bread, the scripture says, except for those with wheat allergies for whom we always provide a (laughs) gluten-free option. Because at the communion table, there's this wonderful element of leveling that happens in Christ. Regardless of how long you've been a follower of Jesus, or if maybe today you're saying, today is my first day. I want to pray with somebody and express my desire to get started into life with Jesus today as my forgiver and leader. We all come to the table in the same place doesn't matter what your tradition is or what your history is. It doesn't matter how many times in your life you've taken communion and celebrated it. We're all in the same boat of being yet again at a place of needing to receive God's mercy and grace. And so if you're a follower of Jesus here, uh, we would invite you to participate. You don't need to call Jericho Ridge home. You just need to be a part of God's family. And so whatever that expression has looked like for you, In the past, we'd invite you to participate with us. You can just make your way over to one of the tables, and there's a serving team there. Uh, Dave and Tammy will serve this side of the room, and um, Tony and Sylvia will serve that side of the room. And so whenever you feel like you're ready, you're free to make your way over there. We also have our prayer team available today, John Mayer, Laura, and Katie, and they would love to stand uh, with you and just pray with you and celebrate with you. Or if you've got something you want to pray and ask for help with, then we would just invite you to make your way over uh, to them as you participate 